Welcome to Inside Aesthetics, the podcast for cosmetic, wellness, and business insider knowledge. I'm Dr. Jake Sloan, a cosmetic doctor based in Sydney, and I'm joined by my co-host and good friend, David Segal, an entrepreneur and a multi-clinic owner in the aesthetic space. We'll cover any topic that makes you look or feel good with long form, unbiased, and unfiltered conversations with expert guests from around the world. New episodes are released every Friday and you can subscribe for free on your favorite podcast app, including Apple Podcasts and Spotify. You should seek medical advice before undergoing any treatment or procedure, and these podcasts do not replace a professional and bespoke consultation. How are you, Professor? Yeah, good, thanks. How are you? We are very good. So I'm Jake. If if it wasn't clear before, this is David. How are you? Thank you for joining us at such short notice. I know you must be crazy busy at the moment and, and your uh, PA, Courtney, has been great just sort of communicating with us. How has your day been? What have you been up to? Um, yeah, not too bad. Yeah, we're in lockdown in Melbourne, so I couldn't go too far over the um, the weekend. I think it's probably similar. You guys are in Sydney, is that right? Are you? Yeah, we're, yeah. we're up in Sydney. Yeah. and yeah, no Mel- one's gone too far, so, you know. Yeah, and I gather you're still working because you're frontline, as it were. Yeah, you know, I um, I normally work as a pediatrician at the Children's Hospital. I've actually been seconded to our Victorian Department of Health to help with some of the vaccine kind of rollout work. So between that and sort of some of the safety stuff, um, yeah, pretty much in vaccines most of the time, yep. Fantastic. Now, we're mindful of that you're a busy man and you've only got yes. an hour with us and we've got a million questions. So yeah, we'll, no we'll dive straight into it. But if you want to introduce to the listeners, you know, what, what your day-to-day job is, you just sort of alluded to it just now. And then what, how have you sort of been brought on board with the COVID vaccination working group, as it were? Yeah, no problems. Um, so yeah, my name's uh, Nigel Crawford. I'm a paediatrician by training at the Royal Children's Hospital in Melbourne. And I'm also head of the immunisation service um, at the Children's Hospital. So I've been working obviously in the national immunisation program vaccines, particularly around children for a long time, and also been involved in um, vaccine policy. I'm a member of ATAGI, the Australian Technical Advisory Group of um, immunisation, but always put a disclaimer that I'm not talking on behalf of Vitagi. I'm just giving my own personal um, discussions as we we chat today. But yeah, been involved in policy for a long time. And maybe the last group to mention is the Melbourne Vaccine Education Centre is a group I helped set up um, now eight years ago. And we're doing quite a bit of education around uh, vaccines and immunisation and did a bit of work in vaccine preparation as we knew the COVID-19 vaccines were coming last year. And then this year, been very actively helping with both the follow-up of adverse events following immunisation and also some of the education and, and policy, um, both uh, at um, MCRI, the Murdoch Children's Research Institute, where my um, research and safety team are based, and also the Victorian uh, Department of Health as an advisor to their um, vaccine program. So long-winded answer, but that's wow. the roles I've been playing. <laughs> so maybe let, let's just start with the very, I guess, most basic of questions. Um, what exactly is a vaccine? I know it sounds like a silly question because I guess we all have our own views and you, you, most people know what it means, but I mean, technically, from your perspective, what is, a, what is a vaccine and how does it work? Yeah, so what essentially a vaccine is trying to do is it's trying to produce uh, or stimulate your immune system to provide some protection from that what traditionally a virus or bacteria, there are some other things that we target vaccines at. But essentially what we're trying to do is, in this case for COVID-19, taking a um, part of that um, virus or the antigen of of that virus and trying to trigger an immune response within the body that will provide you with some protection. So, you know, obviously in childhood program, people know of measles, 
mumps rubella is a live vaccine, so it can be a, a modified form of that virus or can be an inactivated or dead part of that virus of which all the COVID current vaccines we're using are. Where they're basically trying to produce that immune response. So rather than getting the wild type infection or the risks that go with that, you're getting uh, a vaccine that is essentially producing that immune response in, in your body to give you some protection. Now, forget COVID for a second. Vaccines have have always, well, since I've been alive, been slightly contentious for some groups of people. I'm not one of them. Um, but why is there this sort of slight hesitation and, and sometimes fear of the effects of vaccinations in general? Not Not with the COVID ones, but just generally. What's your take on that? No, I think people uh, often have some questions around, you know, any medical intervention. So I think some people are coming in with a questioning mind around um, immunisations and we're giving them to healthy people generally. So while we're sort of sitting in the middle of the pandemic at the moment, majority of us are healthy and we haven't been exposed to the virus. They're wondering, you know, why should we take the risk for potential side effects from a vaccine when we may or may not get exposed to the infection? So I think some of that sort of what we would say vaccine hesitancy is coming from the place of I'm just a little bit uncertain. I don't know about this intervention or what's being injected into my body to try and produce that protection. So you go right back to smallpox and the, you know, Jenna pictures of smallpox and mad cow and, you know, things happening. People have that sort of visualisation of what might happen when we're trying to produce that protection. And over time, we've had to say, look, this is a really important protection, both at you, the individual, and then clearly at a population level. So, you know, just start to try and address some of those hesitancy questions. You've got to try and understand what where people are coming from, why are they a little bit uncertain, um, how can we start to address those questions, you know, moving forward. But I think, as you say, any medical intervention, anything where we're doing medically, some people are going to feel pushed back a, a bit against that and and not necessarily embrace it um, straight away. Yeah, I think there's some um, good information there. And I think this podcast is going to give people a lot of the answers to the questions that they've been asking myself included. And I think it's sort of hard, you know, to know what to believe sometimes because you've, you know, you sort of uh, can't really help being affected by things on social media. You hear the news, you hear people talking, you're hearing lots of different opinions and it's sort of like you almost come paralyzed by over-information and then, and then not being someone that's medically trained, you don't have that, that base knowledge to be able to discern and know what's right and what's wrong. And I think that one of the one of the major pushbacks I hear from people online and comments that I read and so on is that vaccines normally take many, many years to develop and test and long-term side effects. I mean, if you think back to the drug like thalidomide, which was for morning sickness for women many, many years ago, where they thought, oh, it's safe. And then you had children being born with birth defects and so on. So can you just run us through, you know, how is it that this vaccine has been able to be produced and rolled out so quickly? Yes, that's a really, you know, good question. And I think, to be honest, this is actually one of the amazing things to come out of this pandemic is how quickly we have had vaccines to market. And I think it's actually something we should celebrate more than we have at the moment. We're in the middle of a pandemic. And um, we actually, through our Melbourne Vaccine Education Centre, do have a um, animation that kind of talks about the road to a vaccine and how things have gone a little bit more quickly. But essentially, there were these platforms ready to go. And there's a group called the Centre for Epidemic Preparedness and Innovation called CEPI. Um, who were established looking at what the next pandemic might be. And they had five or six different groups that they'd invested in to say, okay, if a new virus emerges, how could you activate that? And people were thinking about, obviously, you know, bird flu or other things that might come along and be that next pandemic. And essentially, they were ready to go and 
One of the first off the rank was the Moderna mRNA vaccine supported by the NIH in the United States. Uh, Barney Graham, one of the lead investigators there, linked in with Moderna, which was a new um, company, and said, okay, we've identified the virus. We've got the genetic DNA code. Within 28 days, they were starting their vaccine program because they were ready to go. It was plugged into their system and developing. So the science actually was there and ready to go. And the timelines then got shortened because it was a pandemic and we had to have a vaccine come to market to start to protect us. So while we're going to talk a bit later about some of those hesitancy concerns or side effects, the fact that they actually had products quickly, went into very big trials, went through the appropriate phases of the trials in terms of phase one and two, looking at um, the dose and how they're working and some of the side effects, then went into big phase three trials of over, you know, 30 to 40,000 people, some having placebo, some having the vaccine and closely monitoring. So while um, the timelines were shortened, the process in terms of vaccine development was very robust and internationally, uh, obviously a huge amount of resources given to support those different platforms. So um, yeah, to sort of answer the question in a short way, while the time was compressed, you know, comfortable that was done in in an appropriate way. And um, you know, as I say, I think we should really celebrate how quickly we have had vaccines come to to market. Am I right in saying that, you know, for, for your average drug, you know, be it a heart disease drug or cholesterol drug, anything, the phase one and two and eventually phase three trials, you might have a few thousand people, but we're talking about tens, maybe even to the hundreds of thousands and millions of people who've had the, the COVID vaccines of the various um, brands now. So, Whilst we are sort of doing an ongoing trial, if you like, we have much more data than your average trial. Is that right? Yeah, no, exactly. That's a that's a good point. So as I mentioned, you know, Operation Warp Speed in the United States that initially funded six vaccine trials, all of um, minimum of 30,000 in those trials, meant 180,000 people were going into those randomised um, trials. And as soon as vaccines came to market, there's then established what's called phase four studies or the monitoring of their effects, um, particularly in terms of safety, very robustly. So, for example, in the US, they've given over 180 million of the mRNA vaccines, Pfizer or um, Moderna. So with their comprehensive follow-up, we now have detailed information. And again, obviously, United Kingdom, again, given huge number of doses of both the AstraZeneca adenoviral vector vaccine, as well as now Pfizer and Moderna being administered. So having robust systems to follow them up um, definitely means we have a huge amount of information which can help guide us in our decision-making. And obviously, Australia's in the place internationally where we're all connected, we can start to you know, see that information as it comes to hand and, and help that guide us in our own um, decision-making. Mm. Um, in terms of the complications and adverse effects, that's something that, again, has been a, a fairly controversial topic. You've had the government now indemnify the pharmaceutical companies from potential litigation if something goes wrong or if someone has a side effect. Can you give us an indication as to what are the different side effects people are having? What are the most common ones and how rare are the ones that are a little more serious? And I think it, it would be irresponsible for me not to sort of say that, you know, there's there's potential complications with every medication that you take, any vaccine that you have. So this is not just something that's peculiar to the, the COVID vaccine side effects. This is something that's fairly universal. Yeah, and I think that's right. So everyone who's prescribing a medication, um, obviously that can be physicians and doctors, but also nurse practitioners, whether in their scope of practice, you know, are prescribing medication need to be aware of the side effect profile. Our pharmacy colleagues, you know, constantly giving advice to their clients around what to expect or what to report in terms of adverse reactions. So you're right, immunizations um, are associated with 
adverse events following immunisation. So we need to be aware that there will be associated with side effects. Some of those were identified in the clinical trials. So we did know what to expect once we saw the, particularly the phase three results um, coming out. And they've been predominantly in that sort of first three-day period. So particularly in Australia, obviously administered the, the Pfizer mRNA vaccine and the AstraZeneca adenoviral vector vaccine. Both have been associated with systemic side effects. So feeling a bit you know, unwell, maybe a temperature, sometimes a headache, sometimes feeling lethargic, often going on for two to three days. People might not feel like, you know, getting out of bed and 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 doing other things for a day or so potentially in that window. And that was seen in the um, clinical trials. So they're what we'd say are expected um, side effects. Clearly, if they're persisting on for longer, you have to start to think about other things that might be um, occurring. And then there are other rare side effects, which we've some of which we've seen with with all vaccines. So the first would probably be allergy or anaphylaxis, an allergic reaction to a vaccine similar to peanuts or other foods, or even medications, penicillin. You can have allergic reactions to a drug. Uh, They can obviously generally be immediate in that first 15 to 30 minutes post the vaccine. And again, we did see from the United States in particular that there were some reports of adverse events and allergy happening early on. So we have seen some allergic reactions here in Australia, which we've monitored appropriately, obviously adrenaline administered immediately. Immunisation providers always know how to do that. And then reporting for follow-up for assessment and future vaccine doses. So allergy, definitely a well-described serious adverse event. You won't see many of these sorts of reactions in clinical trials if they're only occurring, you know, one in 50 or 100 or 200,000. So um, it's only once you get out to the broader population you might to see some of these more serious um, reactions because clinical trials are never going to be big enough to pick up these rare adverse events. That's why it's really important to have these phase four you know, systems or monitoring in place to pick up those rare adverse events and um, and follow them up. And obviously more significant adverse events, I'm sure we'll talk to a bit more, is something like um, thrombosis with thrombocytopenia syndrome or TTS. This is an example of an unexpected uh, adverse event of special interest. We had a whole list of different things we're expecting to see, like allergy, and we're also interested in some other uh, systems that might be um, presenting with reactions to some of the neurological conditions um, that we've seen with other vaccines. But this combination of the low platelets and thrombosis is something that hadn't been described before. So we had to have systems set up to monitor for that and and now manage that um, uh, here in Australia. Yeah, we're going to come on to that a bit later, but it's worth just sort of continuing. So these clots are quite unusual clots compared to your, say, your average blood clot in your leg when you get off a plane or, you know, something of that nature. How common are they? And and you know what can you do about them if it did happen? Yeah, so the the way that they've been broken down by the the CDC in America is what's sort of called a tier one thrombosis or tier two. So I'll just explain those in a bit more detail. Tier one is the unusual location. So this is a central venous sinus thrombosis or a, a clot in the brain, a neurological presentation, um, which may present with unusual persistent headaches. Outside of that day um, three common expected reaction we said before, but a headache that's persistent, unusual, may later be associated with semiological signs going on from four to say 30 days post the vaccine is the window that these been seen out to 42 days. So a more delayed reaction and also gut or um, what's called the splanchnic thrombosis, which can lead to blockage of the, the vessels in your gut and then some ischemia and, and damage of your bowel. So they're pretty unusual places of clot not places that we would traditionally think of. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's a tier one TTS. Tier two is, is low plate associated with thrombosis in locations we've seen before, such as the deep vein thrombosis in your leg or a pulmonary embolus in your lung. So they're kind of the two different levels of the, um, 
uh, types of um, thrombosis and, yeah, that sort of helped explain that, I think. Perfect. And, you know, just to sort of clarify, how rare are these events? And they were associated with one of the vaccine in particular, is that right? Yeah, so this, it's actually associated with what we would call the platform. So again, for listeners, important to think when we think of vaccines such as the mRNA or the uh, messenger RNA vaccines, there's different companies have used the same approach. So for that example, it would be the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccines are both mRNA. For the adenoviral vector vaccines, the two main ones people have heard of are the AstraZeneca vaccine being used in Australia and also the Janssen or J&J vaccine are using that same platform. And both of those vaccines have been uh, identified as as triggers of this um, TTS. So, yeah, very much associated in Australia with the, the AstraZeneca vaccine product, not the, the Pfizer mRNA vaccines. Now, um, mRNA is new in terms of being used and rolled out for, I guess, public consumption. I know it's not a new technology as such, but that's been some of the the concerns, the, the you know, the conspiracy theories, whether they're crazy or not, that's not for me to sort of judge, but th- those have been a lot of the criticisms that have come around. It's going to change your DNA. It's going to create, you know, um, your body could, you know, stimulate your body to produce spike proteins and how you're going to switch that off. Is it going to be an issue going into the future? So could you maybe just speak to a little bit of some of the concerns that people may have around this mRNA, um, you know, alleged DNA altering um, vaccine? Yeah. And again, I think that's a really good question. And I think some of the confusion came about because we started talking about genetics yep. and um, and vaccines. Think about genes, you start to think about your DNA and things that might modify or, or impact on that or cloning or things that have happened, you know, in the science world before in terms of your DNA. But this is very much mRNA just focused at the SARS-CoV-2 virus, which is the cause of COVID-19. So what they're trying to do is use genetic material to carry that spike protein, which is the main, we believe, driver of um, of your um, both getting the infection, but then protection. So if we can take that spike protein deliver it in a way into your body that you're going to start to produce antibody to protect you, then that's a really um, important strategy. And as you mentioned, this is known but not been fully progressed out to a vaccine product before. But essentially by taking that spike protein, it can then be brought into the cells um, with that uh, proteins then being developed. Your body then starts to produce the antibody and that mRNA in those cells are broken down and, and go away. So there's no engagement of that mRNA into your system or into your body or changing you personally, it's really mRNA uh, just focused at the virus and producing that um, protection. Hopefully that helps address some of those, those questions. Yeah, absolutely. Um, can we just go into the, the types of vaccines in a bit more detail? So you've mentioned in Australia, we've got AstraZeneca, Pfizer, and I believe Moderna's been approved, but not actually in use yet. Is that correct? Yeah, that's right. So there's um, four products that are sort of on that approval pathway. And you're right, Moderna's the the next one that's gone going through the regulatory process of the the TGA. It obviously has already been licensed um, for emergency use um, by the FDA and also now used in the UK, the MHRA and the EMA in Europe have authorised that. It's in the same class as Pfizer, so it's an mRNA uh, vaccine. And how do they differ in terms of, you know, dosing, um, in terms of, you know, the intervals? Because this is where things have become a bit squirrely for people. It's changed almost by the the week, particularly for the AstraZeneca um, vaccine. So what's the current guideline as of today? Obviously, it may change. Yeah, so the, the, the key thing with the mRNA vaccines that it was believed that you needed two doses to really produce good protection. They actually brought them pretty close together and the trials were essentially at three weeks was the week 
window, they gave the two doses for Pfizer and Moderna was four weeks. So quite close together for these mRNA vaccine products. Uh, and that's still the current recommendations for those vaccines is that's the, the current window. Um, the, t- the difference in terms of gap or waiting potentially for these mRNA vaccines is that can we give more doses or a single dose if you stretch that out a little bit? So the UK did that. Canada are recommending it because you've got supply constraints, which Australia clearly has, even though good news was, I believe, a million doses have flown into Australia uh, in the last 24 hours. So we do have more um, Pfizer coming to our shores, I think a million doses a week over the next um, coming weeks to really try and help boost up that effort. Um, Is that, um, yeah, really recommended those two doses be administered. If you stretch it out, you might be able to get more first doses in, which do provide good protection from severe COVID, such as hospitalisation and ICU. But again, we might touch on the variants of concern and Delta, everyone's interested, Mm. worried about. And, you know, really those two doses do provide that optimal protection. So stretching it out may work to get more one doses in, but to get that ongoing protection, we really want that second dose in, particularly our most vulnerable, such as those in residential aged care facilities, those working border and quarantine and those frontline healthcare workers on the COVID wards really want to get those two doses to make sure they're protected. Um, moving just on to AstraZeneca, because that sort of follows on the question. The thing that happened there was that the clinical trials with AstraZeneca, which was the Oxford um, group that developed the vaccine initially and then went to AstraZeneca in terms of their production um, partner, their trials didn't always fit on the window that they'd hoped to for the trials. They had initially sort of said four to eight weeks, but actual fact, it turned out some people didn't get it till 12 weeks. And it wasn't sort of by design, it was just the way it happened for recruitment. And as they looked at their results, they showed that actually the longer you waited, you seemed to get a better boost with that second dose. So rather than necessarily going for the four weeks, which was the original minimal interval, as they got out to 12 weeks, they were getting a a bigger booster response. So when you've got a situation where there's very little COVID circulating and you've got a little bit of time to get protection, you say 12 weeks gives you the best level of protection for that particular vaccine product. And that's what was the original um, advice. But clearly when you're in an outbreak and you want to get that second dose in to maximise Delta protection, you'll say actual facts, maybe getting a bit closer to four weeks makes sense. So it's licensed from four weeks of age. If you're under pressure, such as in those regions of Sydney where there's lots of cases, you'd say, okay, let's just bring it you know, back between that four to eight week mark, which is what Sydney, um, New South Wales Health have recommended. I think six weeks, they're making some bookings for AstraZeneca vaccine and definitely very safe to give that dose two vaccine, even the setting of TTS, because the TTS cases have been associated with um, predominantly with dose one. So again, as the, you know, our world is always changing. We're trying to apply science and as best we can adapt to the times. I know it's confusing for both our healthcare professional colleagues and also those in the community. But if we're not using the best evidence, adjusting our strategy as we can with the tools that we have, then we're not doing, you know, the best thing by by protecting our population. So that's the the rationale for that. Let's talk about the different strains there are. So we had the original strain that sort of ravaged the world last year. Australia, we did pretty well out of that. I think we were sort of internationally recognised as handling this very, very well. And we sort of been sort of caught off guard here a little bit. And we're sort of been, I think us and North Korea are the only countries currently in lockdown in the world. I think last time I read all that may have changed. So what is it that is different about this strain? I'm hearing conflicting stories that it's more contagious, but less deadly, because that's generally the way that viruses work is to become less deadly and more contagious to allow themselves to spread and, and proliferate. Um, is that true? Is it more dangerous? Just just run us through sort of where we're at with, with strains. Yeah, so I might just go back a little bit because all this sort of terms like 
mutants and variants of concern, I think, can, can get a little bit confusing. But essentially, a virus like SARS-CoV-2 is going to change you know, over time. So the virus is replicating, it's making copies of itself, which will modify a little bit. And when those modifications are called a, a mutation. And um, once there's one or more mu- mutations, they call it a variant of that original virus. That's where these var- variants come from. And then variants of concern are ones that then start to um, circulate in the in the population. So the big pressures on a on a vac- on a virus can be that high number of um, of infections, and therefore it starts to replicate and and can change. And those variants of concern used to have really confusing names. So they would be one one point seven six six. You know, people get really confused <laughs> with numbers, and and that was happening. Then unfortunately, it was the name of where it first was identified. So it might have been you know India for the Delta strain or. Um, the UK, the Alpha strain, you know, so different countries were seeing these strains for the first time and it was by the country and then they decided, the WHO, no, best to go with the Greek alphabet and let's look at those different variants. And the hard thing to determine what these variants are doing is that different countries have different levels both of infection and vaccination coverage. So if you're looking at the United Kingdom, for example, I think they've just opened up their... Um, status in terms of um, restrictions or calling it Freedom Day, they still have a lot of Delta circulating, but they've got, you know, over 60% of their population vaccinated, particularly those most vulnerable healthcare workers and those in residential aged care facilities. So while you might see more cases being detected, you may not necessarily meet more severity in your hospitals and, you know, deaths in occurring in those vulnerable age groups. Because as you go up every decade of life from 50, 60, 70, 80, you're getting a threefold increase in severity of the infection in, in the you know, in the very first infection that we've seen. Sorry, I was just wanted to ask, what causes Delta to be more contagious? It's still that sort of classical spike protein-shaped molecule, correct? So why is it more contagious? Yeah, it's it's just related to the virus, just tweaking itself enough to become a little bit more transmissible. So I think it's just related to, you know, we've obviously got some defences, you know, innately against the virus. We know the children are much more protected than adults, so they clearly have something about your immune system over time, whether it's the ACE receptors or other things that are driving that. So it's just that the virus is clear enough. Just make a little bit of a change in that spike protein. Mightn't have to be too many um, mutations or changes just to escape some of that innate, you know, immunity that we may have and then make it a little bit more transmissible. And that transmissibility can then relate to a obviously much more wider spread in a population that's not um, protected. And then the vaccines themselves will put some pressure on those mutations. Having said that, it's very different to flu. Flu has, you know, four types we have in the vaccine every year, 2A and 2B, and it's very good at making those, um, you know, modifications to require that change. This is still the same SARS-CoV-2 virus. It's just the mutation making the variants of concern. And it's definitely more transmissible. I think that's really clear internationally and definitely in obviously um, Sydney and now monitoring the situation in in Melbourne. Um, In terms of severity, it's still a little bit uncertain. I think there are some reports saying that it does appear to be having more um, severe disease, particularly in some of those younger age groups I mentioned. You you wouldn't expect to see too many 40 or 50-year-olds, for example, in ICU without risk factors, but we have, I know, heard from a few cases um, around Australia and internationally that data will be emerging. So, again, really important to keep monitoring the international experience to explain you know, the severity of the Delta strain and what that means for our program and maybe some of those, you know, public health measures in terms of social distancing and and restrictions of lockdowns and things, you know, obviously are trying mm-hmm. to take into account that emerging evidence around the, the Delta Delta variant. 
Yeah. And um, again, just asking questions that have been posed to us. So, um, you know, please don't take any of these as sort of disrespectful or wanting to create um, controversy for the sake of it. But I think there is a lot of confusion. So, you know, I feel like we've got to ask, ask some of these questions. So, I mean, when you look at the data and you say, well, okay, this year we've had, um, I was looking at some of the figures yesterday, approximately three and a half thousand new cases of COVID this year. I know that we've had, you can't sort of look at January onwards, you sort of have to look, well, when did it start becoming an issue in the last sort of two months or so, whatever it is. Um, so we've had three and a half thousand cases. We've had, I think it was yesterday, five deaths. Um, of those five deaths, I think there was a few of them that had been vaccinated. There was that issue out at that nursing home in Borkham Hills, I think it was, where I think three residents um, had uh, been tested positive. They were asymptomatic. Um, I think two of them had the vaccine. Um, so when you look at these sort of numbers and you say, well, if it's so dangerous, um, why are there not more deaths? Where, like, How do these figures sort of correlate to shutting down an entire economy, mental health issues, domestic violence, small businesses suffering, all this money the government's giving out, we're going to have to pay it back. That's not free. Um, can you just speak to that a little bit? Again, not, not being controversial for the sake of it, but just wanting to make sure that we address the questions that are sort of out there, you know, circulating in forums and let, let's bring them, to, bring them to the surface and talk about them. Yeah, no, sure. So they're all really good questions. And again, I'm, you know, I'll, I'll do my best to answer some of them. Clearly some of the public health, you know, decisions are coming, you know, through the jurisdictions and then obviously nationally, you know, national cabinet trying to get some consensus around um, the situation. But I guess, you know, back to an experience of those of us living in, in Melbourne, we went through the lockdown last year. It was actually almost exactly this time last year is when our cases started. And initially we thought we could just lock down a couple of suburbs. Then we thought we could lock down the whole city. And within, you know, a few weeks, we had over 700 cases a day and then circulating. We didn't have good protection in our nursing homes and we had a large number of deaths. A lot of the Australian deaths to date have been from that nursing home cases, particularly in Victoria. So I think for a jurisdiction that was sort of significantly impacted by that, we just know once this virus is let go, if you truly let it go and circulate, it can cause a huge amount of devastation. And it wasn't that long ago that India was in the news and we probably talked about it when our cricketers were over there. We were really worried about them getting home. They flew to the Maldives and came back, but a lot of people stuck in India went through the devastation of what this virus has caused, both in terms of trying to get to hospital, not enough oxygen, people being managed in car parks or not even getting to anywhere near a hospital. And I've heard the same stories coming now out of Indonesia and obviously Brazil, again, over 500,000 deaths related to COVID. So while we're kind of in Australia can, you know, be insulated to a degree from the severity of COVID, I think that's what people have seen and heard about at the public health level and know that until you get to a high enough level of protection in a community to allow the virus just to completely circulate would truly override your health system and other services. So we do need to try and get to that higher level of protection. But again, the messaging hasn't come out. We've actually done pretty well now in residential aged care facilities. So I know it's over 90 plus, I believe, in pretty much all the facilities now in terms of residents that are protected. We know that the um, aged care workers weren't as highly protected initially, but certainly a huge amount of effort going to make sure that those staff are also protected. The 70 plus um, vaccination now rates now getting over 70%. Obviously, majority of that is um, AstraZeneca vaccine in that population. So we are trying to protect those most, you know, vulnerable. So while we're saying it's only, you know, 30% overall and a smaller proportion have had that dose two protection because we told them to have 12 weeks. So it was always going to take us longer to get to that full protection. We actually do have pretty good coverage of some of those most vulnerable, including obviously our healthcare workers um, on the front line. So while we're kind of there and we're 
moving until we can kind of have this escalation of protection. We're not quite in a position to open up. And as I mentioned, the, the UK is only just saying to open up now at 60%. I know the Netherlands tried a couple of weeks ago to open up with that sort of coverage and went backwards pretty quickly. And we'll, we'll clearly see what happens in the, the US and Canada in coming months who are now over sort of 70% protection and and see what um, progresses in terms of the pockets, you know, where we still have disease. So, yeah, I think we are in this balancing difficult situation, but um, until we can get to that higher level, um, we're not quite there yet. And I know, you know, colleagues at the, the Doherty Institute and others are starting to do some modelling about how we can step through these next um, few phases in terms of when we might be able to to open up the community. So I think everyone's trying to articulate that as best they can. We can obviously do that um, better on a whole lot of different levels, but yeah, unfortunately we're not quite um, there yet. Is that the one benefit of being behind the rest of the world that we can use those countries as, you know, the models of what we should or shouldn't do and, and what level of vaccination of the population is good enough? I mean, what have we decided in Australia or are we still not sure yet? No, I think they're all really good questions and we definitely need to learn from our overseas you know, colleagues. As I mentioned, they'll have different strategies, they'll have different mixtures of vaccines and different um, you know, proportions, but definitely the, the more that we can share their experience and I know the Canadians, for example, um, this time, sort of January, February, March, they were way behind the United States in terms of their coverage. They hadn't really been able to get things rolling through their different um, systems, but since April, May, they've actually escalated, you know, dramatically in the last few months and now just ahead of the United States in terms of their overall um, protection. Obviously, access to vaccines and supplies is a big driver of that, but it's also about the community jumping on board and supporting that program. So definitely between Europe, North America, and then some of our other uh, closer uh, neighbours will be able to see what they're doing in terms of their vaccine coverage and opening and then um, gauge our response to a degree on that. And I believe there is, yes, yeah, some planning coming on um, through the Australian government to start to map out what that might look like. But you're never going to get a complete, as I mentioned before, a black and white number. You have to reach this number to then do work. There needs to be some capacity to adjust and juggle that. And maybe the last comment on that is the um, head of the CDC, I think mentioned last week, saying COVID's now the disease of the unvaccinated. So there's pockets of America like Seattle and New York with high protection that's now opening up, but there's other small pockets that are you know, very poorly vaccinated and likely to have huge outbreaks still of the disease. So you don't just want coverage to a certain level. You want to make sure that that's, you know, well spread out around the country, and particularly our most vulnerable um, are protected. Another controversial question from our listeners. Um, I think one of them read in the paper yesterday that your working group was, I don't know if you were overtly criticised or if it was sort of a, a loose criticism from the government that, your modelling was sort of based on not being many cases in Australia and therefore the vaccine program was a little bit, I don't know, slow or or, or not planned in a way that we've now foreseen with Delta. Is that is there any evidence to that? I'm not sort of knocking you or your or your group, but it's sort of, that's what I, re I read in the paper yesterday and one of our other listeners submitted a question that we've sort of been caught out, uh, that Delta sort of, you know, come around and we weren't prepared for that, whereas our modelling for vaccinations was based on, you know, what was happening prior to Delta? Yeah, so all the modelling that was presented in the risk-benefit um, gave three different scenarios. So there was the scenario of there's very low disease, as there was in April when the first decisions came around uh, the risk-benefit with the TTS and the um, AstraZeneca vaccine, a particular question. The second model was based on the second wave in Victoria I was talking to before in terms of number of cases. And then the third one was 
when you went into more severe outbreaks such as the United Kingdom saw when um, they went after their summer of sort of everyone traveling they then went into their winter and had a really huge wave um, which I'm sure you know lots of people and your listeners will have colleagues or friends in the UK who've been impacted by that so there were three different scenarios that were presented and again it's very hard with the crystal ball to know where you'll sit and when you do move into that higher phase you'll say oh maybe we should have you know push vaccination harder you know with that in mind but as I mentioned before we can't fully predict that but there were some different models that were articulated and it's also got to be remembered that the UK actually still had a huge number of cases when they made their recommendation that under 30 would have a preference for an mRNA vaccine, which at that time was Pfizer, um, but also Moderna as opposed to AstraZeneca. Remember, AstraZeneca is an Oxford product taken on by AstraZeneca. So it was a nationally very, you know, um, huge public support for that Oxford vaccine. It's had a huge impact um, worldwide. And uh, they made a recommendation uh, at the same time in early April that under 30s um, would not have a preference despite them not having vaccinated that many of under 30s. And then within a few weeks, they changed that to under 40, despite having a huge number of um, COVID-19 disease cases. So even looking at a country like the UK did make some of those recommendations in the setting of a man of disease. So it's very much that risk-benefit discussion. And it's always been open for people to, to have that discussion with their primary care physician. It was always a recommendation, not a complete contraindication, you can't have it. And and once it's been opened up to people, they can go have that risk-benefit discussion. And part of our job as as educators is to provide that risk-benefit evidence as it emerges to help people make that decision. But, you know, end of the day, it's um, the government that decides the decision in terms of the program as the individual, them or their family or their loved ones, if they're making a decision on their behalf that decide to to have the vaccine. Just talking about um, risk-benefit, and we we spoke about the clots earlier, um, David and I have sort of been joking every day and having little debates on the phone about risk and statistics. And, you know, I don't feel like we're qualified to, to really sort of make these sort of arguments. But the risk of the clots, I don't think we, we sort of got a statistic from you, but what, what is the statistic here in Australia at least? And can you put that into some context for, for listeners who don't really have, you know, an understanding of, you know, the, these numbers that we sort of pluck out of the sky? Yeah, so in terms of the, the rates of these conditions, it, it does vary by country and, and the age range, but the, the highest rate um, is sort of the under um, 50 was three per 100,000 or one in 30,000 uh, having one of these TTS cases, and it has been higher in, in different age groups, so up to one in 20,000 in the, the 40 to 49-year age group, for example. So it's a rare condition. So one in 20,000, most people would think of if you fill a you know, football stadium in Sydney or Melbourne with 100,000 people and you're vaccinated, there'll be five cases of that condition. And as I mentioned, that's why they weren't, you know, picked up in the in the clinical trials. So not a common reaction, um, but is it is serious and, and can be severe. So we talked earlier about that central venous sinus fibrosis in the brain or the um, gut clots. And there is a predisposition for those more severe T1s in younger age groups. Mm. So while it's one thing is the rate, the second thing is the severity. So the older age groups have a lower rate and also had more tier two or the DVTPE, which again, if we identify it, we can treat it. So um, our hematology colleagues have done amazing work and you basically don't get heparin therapy. You can give intravenous immunoglobulin or gamma globulin to modify uh, this illness if you identify it early enough. And also corticosteroids, other medications might also be utilized as well as obviously expert care within our hospitals and intensive cares as required. So if we do get early recognition, we can minimize the risk of morbidity and mortality 
Um, and certainly we've seen a lower rate of, of both of those here in Australia to date compared to our international um, experience. But at you know, end of the day, it is a really serious uh, adverse event and it's that you know, risk-benefit um, equation that, uh, that comes in. Uh, and as mentioned, the, the rates uh, in over 60s, you know, around the 1.5 um, per 100,000 mark. So, you know, around one in 60,000, something like that. So definitely a lower uh, incidence in those, in those age groups. Right. So with the, the vaccines, how are they going to potentially protect us into the future with other strains? Is it going to be a case of, you know, every year there's going to be a new COVID vaccine to deal with the new strains? Um, what happens if you've already had the virus? Is you, do you still need a vaccine if you've already had it and were sort of, you know, seemingly okay or relatively asymptomatic? Yeah, so in terms of um, those that have had the infection, we do recommend they still have the vaccine, mainly because we just don't know if they will have longer-term protection. So if you've had, obviously, the acute infection, we'd say you'd wait three to six months before you had the vaccine and, and still have your two doses. So we are recommending those with previous infection do still get immunised to try and provide that longer-term um, protection. In terms of basically what you're asking is around booster doses or do we need to give a you know third dose of these vaccines moving into the future and clearly evidence around variants of concern. This will be another example of where we learn from our international colleagues, the um, JCVI or the Joint Committee of Vaccine Immunisation in the UK have recommended that a third booster dose is given before their winter, but targeting those that are most vulnerable. So starting off with those healthcare workers, those with special risk medical conditions who are immunosuppressed and those who are 70 plus or living in a residential aged care facility. So they will be recommending boosters um, in there, but the United States, for example, hasn't mentioned that yet. And I don't think you can really have the conversation until you have enough of your population having had their two doses before you start thinking about <laughs> the third booster one. So we're not quite there yet. But the, the benefit in particular of these mRNA vaccines is they can be adjusted pretty quickly for those changes. So, you know, if you're noticing that your vaccine, which we'll find the evidence for in terms of protection um, of both transmission and severe disease is not protecting against those new variants, you may have to make some adjustments to the vaccine or those booster shots. And I'm sure all the companies will be getting organised to try and understand that question. And there are other vaccine candidates coming through as well, which will hopefully provide broad protection. So hopefully as we can add more vaccines into the you know, armoury of protection, we can then get the right schedule that, that works for different populations to protect them moving forward. We all want to get back to a whatever's a COVID normal, don't we, to try and protect ourselves and allow things to open up. You mentioned before the the mental health and economic impacts and, you know, no one in public health can't recognise that's, you know, significant as a paediatrician impact on schools and other things is, you know, pretty dramatic. Um, young people, at, you know, trying to study or starting their working life, it's been very difficult. So I totally acknowledge all of those components and hopefully vaccines are part of the, you know, platform that allows us to, to, to move out of that. Um. Do you have any knowledge about the studies in kids? I think it's ongoing in the UK at the moment. They've got thousands of children currently. And, and what, what age limit is that trial um, aiming at at the moment? Do you know? So the, the current registration for uh, the vaccines is 12 years of age. So Pfizer's licensed from 12 years of age um, in a number of countries are being utilised in the Canada and the US from 12 and over for uh, the Pfizer um, and Moderna vaccine. So we are going to start to see some evidence in those countries in terms of the impact um, in those populations. And Israel as well has gone down into adolescence with their um, 
products. So definitely evidence emerging around that um, protection. We have just heard that the UK is not going to initially offer it to every young person in that adolescent age group. They are going to focus on those with underlying medical conditions, um, but not um, all children at this stage. And I think I touched on earlier, there's you know, obviously less severe disease in that age group may still play a role in transmission and obviously the Delta strain and number of cases and impact on school and families and all those things will play into those decisions. So again, I think we're in a position where we need to monitor that emerging evidence, come up with policy that's, you know, evidence-based and, you know, adjust that as, as we progress. And, you know, the, again, the UK had an example of just going down those ages to protect people over those decades of life. So, we need to try and progress through that as, as we get um, on top of the vaccine supply. Once all of the vaccines have been rolled out and hopefully we've been able to get past um, the current situation, eventually I guess the world will return to some kind of some kind of normality where we're travelling and doing the things that we used to do. Is it ever going to be able to return to normal? I mean, are we going to be constantly chasing our tail as this virus sort of circulates around the globe in, in different pockets of people and different demographics and it's continually changing? And I know you guys can make vaccines and adjust them relatively quickly, but are we going to be in this constant battle or will things eventually return to how they how they were? Um. Yeah, that's a really good question. I think that the how the, they were thing is difficult, isn't it? Because once we've gone through something like this, there's all the overlay that we've mentioned before in terms of those social impacts of the pandemic. But I think we should stay positive. I think we have seen infections that have come before. I think people have, you know, moved through them and and um, developed a way to live where we can, you know, modify an impact on the virus but it doesn't take over all of our day-to-day life as it's doing in the moment, isn't it? It's in the media. You can't help but, you know, look at your device and see what the latest case numbers are in Sydney and Melbourne if you're living in those regions in particular. So I think we want to get to a place where we're managing the, the virus to that level. Clearly flu is an example. I said it's not the same, but it is something where we give an annual vaccine, we modify it. We have years that are worse than others. We have you know significant amounts of hospitalisation, but we've got a healthcare system that can take on and ab- absorb that. So I think we should stay optimistic that we can get to a place with all the different tools that we have our public health response has been enhanced and there's been a lot of system strengthening, hasn't there? The way our public health systems can now track cases, monitor, turn around, you know, 50,000 tests in 24 or 48 hours. So our capacity to kind of handle a pandemic has moved well beyond we ever would have maybe envisaged um, even a few years ago. So I think very hopeful that all that system strengthening puts us in a really good position to be able to handle it. But you know, the psyche might be even harder because we've had this situation where things change and we lock down so quickly, there's going to be quite a bit of time before we can move through that. But yeah, I think I'm a, a glass half full <laughs> rather than empty uh, yeah. person when it comes to that discussion. So I'd very much like to think we can get to a place where we can manage this infection, but still be yeah traveling and doing things that we, we did do in the past. Right. And what about basic things that people can do to, to sort of protect themselves, boost their immune system. I mean, I know we see things, social distancing, wear a mask, all those sorts of things. But, you know, I haven't really seen any public health announcements around make sure you're sleeping, you know, seven to eight hours a night, make sure you're drinking X amount of water, um, exercising, all these sorts of things. So what are the, the basics that people can do from your perspective, from a medical perspective, to, to bolster their immune system naturally as well as all the other things? Yeah, I think that's a good a good point. I think you're yeah, just trying to be as healthy as as you can. So I don't think there's any lifestyle changes that can necessarily impact, you know, as COVID comes. So could have you done something in the two weeks before you got exposed to this virus that would have impacted on your need to go to hospital or elsewhere? So I don't think there's anything kind of 
you can do in terms of a boost of your system to necessarily modify that. It'd be nice if 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 we could. But yeah, definitely yeah, trying to look after yourself in terms of your your mental health. And we know that for some people that's exercise, other people it might be music or other things that they enjoy doing, trying to, you know, obviously drug and alcohol things. You can sometimes, you know, be a bit of outlet, but trying to moderate that, still trying to stay connected with people, even in the setting of that isolation. Looking out for your friends. I know people who are single and don't have that necessary social contact can be ones that are very vulnerable. So, you know, looking out for your colleagues and your friends who are in that situation or your family, you know, is going to be really important. And obviously, you know, Odyssey and other supports are really looking at that moat, you know, um, mental health angle. So I think, yeah, trying to keep yourself as healthy as you can and, and even monitoring your underlying health conditions. So definitely more severe COVID have been those that have unstable diabetes or have uncontrolled blood pressure or other underlying medical problems. And some people have, you know, obviously not necessarily been having as many healthcare visits or not seeing their doctors to have some of those checks they might've done in a regular way. So I think trying to, if you do have underlying medical issues that you're making sure as best you can, that you're monitoring those and manage them to the best you know, of your ability, if you're caring for someone that you're doing that can hopefully minimise the risk of um, of COVID more broadly. Perfect. Now, where are we with the vaccination rates in Australia? Is it still around 5 million people, something like that? And how are we going to get that more? I mean, I had my first vaccination uh, two and a half weeks ago and I went to the the large sort of centre at the the Olympic Stadium and, you know, there's thousands of people and yet they, they can only do about five or 6,000 vaccinations a day. So you're kind of thinking, how are we going to do millions and millions of people quick enough to get out of this current issue that we're in with the lockdowns? What, what, what's the planning uh, of that? Yeah, again, a really good question. And I think probably back to the, the UK gave us a great example of how they quickly you know, ramp that up. So they're using lots of public spaces. And I think we saw sort of churches and other things being opened up to allow, you know, mass vaccinations to come through. So I noticed most jurisdictions are now opening up some of those um, mass centres, which is important, obviously utilising other deliveries, making sure our GP, you know, have enough vaccine. Obviously the Pfizer vaccines now available to the GP practices. So there is co- increased capacity, hopefully within primary care to deliver vaccines, particularly those that are most vulnerable pharmacists also getting organised to deliver vaccines and then just the workforce, trying to make sure that we're, we're educating and have a big enough workforce, you know, as you mentioned, to deliver those vaccines in a quick um, turnaround. So part of it's supply, having enough vaccine to administer and calling people at the appropriate time to get their vaccine when they're asked to come forward. Um, and then having obviously the physical space and then the um, workforce to deliver that vaccine. So certainly a huge amount of work going on I know both at the Commonwealth and jurisdictional level um, to help make that happen. So, yeah, I think for your listeners, definitely lots of planning is going on to try and um, maximise that. And the last thing I do is just a bit of a plug still for those most vulnerable. So there may be some people, you know, disability um, houses, for example, where it's really important to protect those people living in those houses and their workforce. So it may be that some people need more nuanced approaches to make sure we can get in there and protect those most vulnerable who may not find it hard to go to a mass clinic or can't get online and make that booking can be quite difficult. So while we need to vaccinate at a population level, we also need to make sure we're protecting our most um, vulnerable. Would it be, I mean, I don't mean this literally, but would it be impractical to set up, you know, outside of Coles or somewhere very, very practical where, you know, people are going anyway and it's almost the convenience of it that makes it harder to avoid? Yeah, no, that's a good point. I think that has been considered. I know, you know, underneath Bunnings, um, car parks are turning into <laughs> testing stations and things like that. So you didn't get a 
a sausage, you got a, you know, a yeah. swab. So or both. I know things like that. Or both. No, no, a that, swabby can't, sizzle. Can't. Yeah, a sausage and a poke. There you go. <laughs> <laughs> that could sell. Why not do that? <laughs> uh, um, and I know workplaces are being, you know, inventive about trying to support the vaccination as well. I know the industry, you know, leaders were coming forward about their workplaces and trying to protect them. See so the fly and fly out workers, you know, recently had were part of a, an outbreak and testing. So I think anything novel that can be, considered to try and maximize protection is, is worthwhile exploring and you know as you say we want to try and maximize the majority of the population uh, by the end of 2021 once we have that supply increase so anything we can do to support that in a safe way so making sure that we're still monitoring for um, adverse events watching the cold chain and you know all of those issues that can happen when you change that workforce you need to still make sure you're delivering things safely with appropriate um, processes to you know do that as, as safely as we can. Perfect. Well, I think we've rattled through our questions. We've just got a couple of listener questions and I'm deliberately going to make this anonymous so no one feels picked on (laughs) (laughs) or victimized. Um, This is slightly controversial, I guess, but what do you think of the the current New South Wales lockdown light, as we've sort of termed it? Was it too soft? Did we need to be more, uh, you know, strict straight away to get on top of this quicker? Or was this just inevitable? Yeah, I, I think the public health services around Australia are doing the best they can with the evidence as it comes to hand to make the right decisions in their circumstances. So I think New South Wales have done very well at locking down, you know, as required for different outbreaks. And again, you know, Victoria, talking from our experience, learned a lot from the New South Wales public health units in terms of locking things down. But I think a new variant like Delta coming along and different transmissibility in those vulnerable populations we mentioned can change things very quickly. So I think um, yeah, I'm not going to criticise the public health response, to be honest. I think it's just about making the best decisions they can with the best available evidence and, and modifying that um, as you can to, to try and move forward. Clearly, Victoria had, you know, major outbreak last year, so therefore much more likely to go, you know, hard with a lockdown given that experience. But um, I think you just need to modify things as best you can to, to try and get on top um, of the virus in your circumstance. Presumably, though, let's say we do end in two weeks. God, God forbid that we go longer. But if we get out of it, great. What will the number need to be? Would it be zero or, or low numbers? Because as soon as we get out of the house and go back to work and go to the gym again, we're going to see another spike and then we'll be back to another lockdown. So we're sort of stuck until we get the vaccine rate higher, are we? Yeah, I think it's a combination of the two. So again, the vaccine rate's going to increase, but it's not going to increase in to that, that two-week window. So I think the, you know, essentially the public health measures are still going to be crucial as we try and progress. So it's really that, yeah, social distance masking and then those restrictions through the different levels, depending on the number of cases that's decided you need to get to for that management. And, and I think the key one is, um, you know, how linked are those cases? Can you identify those trains of transmission. So I think if you know that all of your cases are linked and you know that the person who was contacted is already in isolation because of that, then you can feel comfortable. You've got things under control. As soon as you have a whole lot of cases where you're not quite sure where that transmission's occurred, it's much, much harder to, you know, obviously keep a track and and all those different contact points. So I think it's a combination of all of those factors that go into that um, into that decision making. Um, is there any evidence um, to suggest that the spike protein could cause infertility uh, moving into the future? I think Jake and I came across um, an epi- epidemiologist suggesting that there could be an issue with Synactin-1 in terms of it's vaguely similar to the spike protein. Do you know anything about that at all? Are we sort of panicking too soon, too prematurely? 
Yeah, there's no evidence around, you know, infertility that, that I'm aware of. And as mentioned, there's obviously been a huge number of vaccines now administered, particularly in the United States with the mRNA vaccines and then the, the UK and Europe with both the adenoviral vector and mRNA and no flag that I've heard around um, infertility. You mentioned before other vaccine programs. This is flagged with other vaccines. So the HPV or human papillomavirus vaccine was also flagged um, given obviously to adolescents and young women out to 26 when we first started our program in, in 2007. People concerned around primary variant failure or, or infertility and, and no proven association. And even though sort of things are flagged in terms of similarities, no real um, clear you know, pathophysiology or biological pathway that identified any issue with fertility. So um, yeah, from my understanding, there's no concerns about fertility with, the, with these vaccines. I have to say in my research, I was just sort of Googling a lot about that story and, and it, it is an epidemiologist who's, who sort of suggested it, but that's all he did. And then it was one of those sort of urban myths that just went out onto YouTube and people were starting to say <laughs> it does cause infertility. So it's just one of those sort of things where someone comes up with a sensible suggestion that should be looked at and then suddenly everyone believes it and it's very hard to know sort of what to believe. And I guess on the similar vein, people were asking about, do we know the effects on pregnant women? Uh, were they recruited into the initial trials or indeed, you know, presumably they're vaccinating pregnant people now in the UK and, and elsewhere? Yeah, so again, that's a, that's a good question. So actually that they weren't in the original trials. So often, unfortunately, because of concerns around these new platforms, they weren't um, in the original, um, say, for example, those Operation Warp Speed trials in America, the, the six trials I mentioned didn't recruit pregnant women. But a huge number of doses have now been administered, particularly in the United States, and they've monitored them very closely. So they had both women who are pregnant, obviously healthcare workers or others who are offered the vaccine or then became you know, pregnant in that window post and they actually had some active surveillance where they then followed them up, you know, for months afterwards to make sure that the infant was okay and no concerns regarding breastfeeding in, in thousands of um, women and, and the United States have published extensively on that, particularly for the Pfizer vaccine. So a lot of evidence around both safety um, for the mother and for the infant and therefore very reassuring in terms of um, protecting uh, pregnant women who we know are unfortunately at higher risk of um, you know, complications for both them and potentially the infant if they did get COVID-19. So we do consider them a, a special risk group who we'd support um, being vaccinated. Um, there's been some fairly controversial discussions around a drug called ivermectin. Um, there's a quite a well-known uh, evolutionary biologist by the name of Brett Weinstein who's been on a number of high-profile podcasts in the last couple of months. Some of them have been censored and taken down and all sorts of interesting things. Um, do you know anything about this drug? Is there any is there anything here for us to look at as, as a consideration, as a defence against uh, COVID-19? Yeah, there's been quite a lot of drugs, haven't there, that have come out and people tried to find, you know, protection. So I think, again, it's understandable questioning. Can we find things that can produce protection? And, and actually one of the best trials that have been set up uh, is the recovery trial in the United Kingdom that's looked at lots of these different medications in a, in a stepwise, you know, progression that those who received them and those didn't uh, in the UK over, over time. Uh, Ivermectin is an antiparasitic uh, medications. It has been used for scabies, for example, as one of its um, uses uh, medically, and it has been trialled as a preventative therapy. But my understanding at this point in time, no evidence of protection against um, SARS-CoV-2. So no prophylactic medications that I'm aware of taken regularly, such as doxycycline or others that have also been flagged, have any evidence of utility and, and really vaccination is, is the way to go, would be my opinion. But was it being used as a vaccine or was it being used as a treatment? 
because I, I I thought that it was being used as something to take if you had it rather than as a as a sort of prophylactic or a, a vaccination type of approach. Yeah, so some of them are both. Some of them people okay. start to take them as a prophylaxis, so it stops you getting a bit like the hydroxychloroquine kind of yep. um, Trump, you know, scenario. Other <laughs> ones are being used as a therapy for those that are, have been diagnosed. But either of those points, I don't believe any evidence of efficacy at this point in time. Fair enough. Now, last question. I can't believe we're almost exactly on time. We've got 30 seconds or so left before you have to shoot off. Um, in people who've been exposed to COVID and they obviously develop antibodies, has there any, ever been any trials where they then, you know, do like a, a I guess, a donation of, of those antibodies into other people? Yeah, again, it's a good question. And, and people have tried that, but just the passive immunoglobulin, so partly that sort of, you know, IVIG or other therapies is really just a whole lot of antibody trying to switch off your immune system. So certainly, you know, antibody more broadly can often switch off active inflammation and then more targeted antibody you think would work uh, against infection. But just taking passive um, antibody, I don't believe has been shown to be particularly effective despite a number of trials and a couple in the US that showed maybe they were having some benefit but not enough to extensively. But there have been some monoclonal um, antibodies and one particular um product made by Regeneron. Again, I mentioned that recovery trial in the UK, which is a monoclonal antibody targeting the COVID protein. So it's more sort of a passive immunization. It's been used for other, um, what we would consider potential vaccine preventable diseases such as RSV or respiratory syncytial virus. There's a monoclonal antibody you can give young infants in the first year of life every month and they're less likely to get severe RSV. So again, they're not a vaccine in terms of producing that longer-term protection, but they are giving you target antibody to give you protection. And Regeneron has a combination of two um, monoclonal antibodies. It has been shown to give protection in those severely hospitalised in an ICU. So there have been a few targeted medications in ICU which appear to make a difference. People also looking at, you know, heparin down the tracheal tube and other things that can help you, you know, in ICU that can definitely make a difference. So you're right. Once you're in that pointy end of care, there's been a lot of... Um, um, tocilizumab and IL-6 inhibitor makes a difference in some of the severe inflammatory, severe COVID and also multi-system inflammation. So definitely a lot of huge amount of work's gone into that ICU care, um, both in terms of supporting care, but also some medications that might make a difference. And there are a few that have definitely helped in that sort of pointy tip of the iceberg, you know, ICU presentation. And I'm sure our ICU colleagues, unfortunately in Sydney, who have some cases are, are using that research and evidence to apply some of those therapies to patient to unfortunately become that sick um, in intensive care. Fantastic. Well, I think we've done this to death. We've asked all <laughs> of the the burning questions. We really appreciate, um, well, firstly, responding within a day. I couldn't believe yeah. it when we reached out and you said, yeah, sure, we'll do it on Monday. We, we've had some guests that we still haven't got a podcast and we've been speaking for about six <laughs> months. So I really do appreciate your time and, and so does David. Yeah, and answering all the, the curly questions that um, people want to know because I think sometimes it's, you know, it, it's a difficult, it's a sensitive topic. Um, it's affecting everyone in different ways and I think, um, it's just great to have like an open, candid discussion and, and sort of answering all the questions, no matter how ridiculous or controversial they may seem. So thank you. Um, if anyone wants to reach out and get in touch with you, is there any sort of way, an email address, or do they go through a particular body for anyone wanting further information? Um, yeah, email would be fine. Or through our Melbourne Vaccine Education Centre, we have an information email I'll, I'll share with you, which you can circulate. It's often we have some frequently asked questions that we put up, some of the things you've mentioned there in terms of the, as I mentioned, the um, 
you know, road to a vaccine or some of the preparation work or some of the specific questions around mRNA vaccines or particular adverse events of special interest. So we do have some information on our MVEC website, which we'd be happy to share and some email generic questions can go through there and specific things can, can come through as um, if that's helpful. Fantastic. Well, guys, we'll put um, Professor Crawford's um, email and, and details at the bottom of the podcast description. So thank you very much for your time, Nigel. Uh, really appreciate you uh, taking the time out. I know you're a very, very, very busy man. So thank you. Yeah, thanks again, Nigel. And we'll speak soon. No problem. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. Thank Take you. Care. For our latest news, upcoming guests and episode topics, follow us on Instagram at Inside Aesthetics Podcast. During the week before every recording, look out for our Instagram stories as we'll give you the opportunity to submit your questions to our guests and get a shout out. You can also DM us for any other information, suggestions or guest requests.